From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Snobs don't understand what Panto's about. They spoke about um, people in RTE torturing children in order to extract adrenochrome. I get very, I get very Larry David in airports. I, I find, I find people extraordinary. I said, why, why would you be wandering around aimlessly when I could be walking past you? Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, words from below. Why we should listen when the land talks to us. The land, from the ridiculous to the dangerous, how conspiracy theories ensnare people, and bang up how a four hundred euro repair job became a forty thousand euro bill. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's sadly fallen behind on the ritual satanic pizza-making. The Newsings, that's the Musings on the News, kids, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show started in the Departures Lounge. You know when you're in, 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 for example, the airport, if you're lucky enough to be heading off somewhere on a trip and you stand on the Travelator, you know the thing? And part of me goes, you know, I could be quicker if I walk beside it. Because that person who's standing on it is kind of missing the point. You're kind of meant to be walking with it. And then I thought, well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're just meant to stand on it and let the travelator take you. You know, and that's, you take a little breather. The travelator. Or should you be walking with it and in the hum of your bag wheeling behind you? Or should you stand to the right and maybe let the other person walk past you? That? Never quite sure. So I said, to avoid all complication, I'll walk beside it. I can fit I'm relatively healthy. I'm ready for this. I'm in a hurry. I'm always in a hurry. I just want to get to where I want to be. And I don't, I don't like having somebody... I, I, get very, I get very Larry David in airports. I, I, find, I find people extraordinary. I said, why, why would you be wandering around aimlessly when I could be walking past you? Yes. My, my fr- my fr- I've got to say my friends. My colleagues uh, <laughs> here say to me regularly, we'd love to put a, a camera on your head for a day just to watch your life. We'd love to. And I said, maybe someday, but not today or tomorrow. Can we go back to the Travelator? Let's go back to the Travelator. So at the Travelator, Dublin Airport have tweeted to tell you that how long it takes to be on the Travelator and what sort of time you, you're saving. So they say the results are in from start to finish. Walking along one of the Travelators took about 30 seconds. Walking beside the Travelator, that's me, at the same pace, of course, took around... 37 seconds. Not a big saving of time. However, and here's the kicker, standing still and letting the travelator do all the work took a grand total of 1 minute and 28 seconds, which is probably, Janice, what you did. You stood there, letting the travelator take you all the way to Oct. <laughs> One minute. Janice, very kindly, dropping down the tissues for, for my nine-year-old sniffles. To probably stood there with her bag as the travelator took her one minute and 28 seconds while the rest of us just walked past, walk on by. Dion warwicking our way through it. Just keep on going. Keep on trucking. But before there's any anger, and this is a good point, they're doing this something very clever here. Before the people start going, actually, um, we've done the thumbs and we realise that if you... Before any of that happens, over the point of them for, for, for a seven-second saving, before people going in, oh, I have them at all. They say the travelators are there to help tired and less mobile passengers. Okay, so that was quite a clever bit of preemptive uh, shade throwing activity. They, 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 well done, Dublin Airport. I like that tweet. Covers a, covers a multitude. The delicate line walking of Dublin Airport's marketing department, celebrated by the non travelator using Mr. Tuberty this morning 
onto politics and its interface with entertainment. So Liz Truss, God help us, and Quasi Quartang, uh, Quartang have abandoned the plan to abolish the top rate of income tax, as we know, because we talked about it yesterday. How do we feel about that expression? Yeah, I know. I get it. How do we feel about that? But I can be frank. I know the plan put forward only 10 year, uh, days ago has caused a little turbulence. I get it. I get it. Uh, we are listening and have listened. I get it. It, it, it strikes me a little as um, just saying. You know, it's got that slightly passive-aggressive... Yeah, but the, 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 the London Economic uh, Journal or paper, whatever that is, has been saying that um, this is a, a line straight out of the, of the succession playbook. If you remember, Shiv addressed employees on the back of a series of scandals and she said pretty something similar. I'm Siobhan Roy. Waystar's new president of domestic operations. I know that some of you have concerns, and I'm here to tell you, we get it. See, it's all been done before. Hmm, more showbiz, less politics, please. James Bond producer Barbara Broccoli has recalled a distressing meeting with the late Amy Winehouse to discuss the possibility of the singer recording the theme song to Quantum of Solace. Oh, what a missed opportunity. Her whole life was a missed opportunity after she died. It was just desperate run. And she was only 27. The last three Bond themes have all won an Oscar for Best Original Song. Isn't that amazing, in fairness? So it was uh, Billie Eilish for No Time to Die and then Skyfall for Adele and The Writings on the Wall, which I played yesterday from Sam Smith. But Barbara Broccoli was saying um, that poor old uh, Amy Winehouse was very fragile emotionally and that she was not at her best. My heart really went out to her. She said she understood how she could create such moving material because she has a great depth of feeling. It was very, very tragic. And then the Quantum of Solace song, Another Way to Die, which a lot of people disliked, but I happen to like. It was recorded by Jack White and Alicia Keys. I like that a lot. But people, I don't know why people are so sniffy about it. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, earlier this year, the White Stripe singer said that he was asked to step in because, because Amy wasn't showing up to the sessions or wasn't delivering the song that they were asking her to do. Well, she wasn't in the best of shape, unfortunately. Now, if I told you that Serene McKellen was going to star in an off-season panto in Dublin, would you believe me? Oh, ye of little faith. Ian McKellen coming to Ireland as Mother Goose. That's a fever dream headline. Ian McKellen, who's, is he not... I remember at school in sixth year when they wheeled in the video machine. You know, it came in as a trolley with massive buttons and cassette tapes the size of dinner plates. Clunk, clink, clank, clunk. Is this a dagger I see before me? And it was Judy Dench as Lady Macbeth, Ian McKellen as Macbeth, a BBC production with lots of curtains and ham. But I loved it. And McKellen, uh, I'll never forget, I remember being shown this in school. And at the, the, the dagger scene, is this dagger scene before? McKellen does, he acts so well. And so that he's spitting and the saliva is dribbling down his chin and it's disgusting and repellent and you can't take your eyes off it because he is, what, as Macbeth should be, demented and haunted. And, and, and it's, it's really it's quite something. It's pretty much widely available to find if you're thinking... Do you know what I'd love to watch tonight now? A BBC production <laughs> of Macbeth with Ian McKellen and Dame Judi Dench. Oh, yes. Hold that Netflix thought for a moment. That's exactly what you need. Um, 
Anyway, Golden Globe winner Ian McKellen is uh, going to set is going to star in the family friendly year round panto. God help us, Mother Goose, which will have its Irish premiere next March. What? The Lord of the Rings and X Men star, twice nominated for an Oscar, has stage credits in the likes of King Lear and Hamlet, and the aforementioned, if I may add, for my own true sense, where's Macbeth? And um, he will be in this. Uh, production uh, with John Bishop among others and they, uh, they, it tells the story of Mother Goose and her husband Vic who run an animal sanctuary for Waysons trees and live a wholesome life inside an abandoned Debenhams but their feathers get seriously ruffled when another goose flies in that sounds utterly bonkers probably great fun but bonkers McKellen has said in the past, incidentally, snobs don't understand what Panto's about. Fair enough. Whatever Serene says about theatre is fair enough, I'd say. But he may soon have a rival on the screen acting stakes in the unlikely form of... Daniel O'Donnell to star in new Halloween film. I love this. Well, I love Daniel anyway. Daniel O'Donnell, according to the Irish Independent, is set to debut his acting skills later this month with a lead role in an Irish film. Well, hang on a second. Down at the Laddie Da constitutes, I would have thought, a breakout role for Daniel in that video where he, Daniel, what Daniel has got is what, he just knows what's going on. That's what I like about this guy. And he's enjoying himself along the way. Um, if you haven't seen the video for Down at the Laddie Da, you're welcome. And um, it is great fun, as is he. So now he's going to be in a, in a it's, it seems to be a, a bit of fun. It's called Night of the Daniels. <laughs> A YouTube video. It'll be available on October 28th for Halloween. And uh, he's teamed up with uh, the lads who, who gave us Down at the Laddie Da. That's Sean Duggan and Kieran McCann of React Productions for the spooky short film. Count me in. That sounds like good fun. That will truly be something to behold. And as the newsings couldn't possibly top that, we're going to call it a day. Ryan Tuberty, the news, kind of. The musings on said news. The newsings. We'll do it again next time. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Professor Pete Lunn, head of the Behavioural Research Unit at the Economic and Social Research Institute, joined Claire to talk about how budgetary measures affect our attitudes, particularly in light of the recent budget, which contains several one-off lump-sum provisions. We respond quite differently to lump sums to how we respond to regular income. So I think people understand that when they've been given a lump sum, there's no absolute guarantee that they'll be given the same kind of, as it were, emergency lump sum next time around. And that's important because people do respond differently to losses and gains. If you give someone an income increase and then you take some of it away, psychologically, that's more painful than the equivalent sort of... um, pleasure, if you like, or benefit that they got in, in, in the first place. So it's it's easier in many ways if you're facing budgetary difficulties to try to resolve them with a lump sum that doesn't come with a guarantee that it'll be repeated. Although, of course, if it's repeated over a number of years, then an expectation does build up. So things like the Christmas bonus, um, there will be a huge cost to taking those away at this stage. So people respond very differently depending on what their expectation is. So the government very clearly understands that they're taking a one-off measure. Do we understand that, though, or do we have an expectation that it'll be repeated? 
I think that's going to depend what happens. And I think one of the reasons that the government has used lump sums so extensively in this budget is precisely because of the degree of uncertainty about what's happening over energy prices and the war in Ukraine and inflation generally. So they didn't want to lock in large income increases, which will be difficult for the public purse on an ongoing basis, if it was going to be the case, for example, that energy prices would actually fall in 2023. And you know, don't trust anyone who tells you that they know for sure what way the, these kind of um, commodity prices are going to go. They don't. And one of the reasons, therefore, to go with these lump sums is they are going to be easier to withdraw if the picture looks more rosy next year. I think, however, if we're still facing into another winter with um, very high energy bills next year, uh, there will be an expectation that similar measures are taken. And that question uh, that I posed in, in the beginning about the government basically giving back our own money at budget time, like, are we really any better off today than we were before the budget? Well, this is a good question. I mean, I think there's a sort of misconception that happens with inflation when inflation is caused by external sources. And there's a kind of simple way to understand it in economic terms. I mean, you know, if energy prices worldwide go up to the degree that they have there, I mean, there's nothing we as a small country can do about that. And they're built into so many products that, you know, they push prices up generally. And the best way to think about that actually is that we've all been made simultaneously poorer. Now, the government can give us money in terms of, you know, one-off payments and increases in welfare payments and tax breaks and so on. But as you rightly say, they're essentially giving us our own money. What they're really doing is they are giving us money from our own future selves uh, or from money that we've managed to save because the public finances are in decent shape. You're absolutely right. It's our own money. The key here, though, is that they also redistribute. So a lot of the lump sum payments are designed to help people on lower incomes get through this winter. And one of the interesting things about this budget, as some of my fellow economists at the SRI have shown, is that once the lump sums are taken out of the equation in kind of permanent income terms, actually it tends to be middle class households that have done slightly better if the lump sums aren't repeated. And it's only once you take the lump sum payments into account, actually, that it's really then that low income households are being kind of strongly helped. Which tells us that it probably is going to have to be repeated if, as we expect, the prices uh, stay high. Yeah, it may have to be. It may have to be repeated. Yes, or, or alternatively, I mean, one could go for a different strategy. I mean, there are some downsides to giving people money in lump sums, which is that people find them somewhat harder to manage. So if you get given a lump sum, it, it's great in the sense that it, it's certain, it's a certain amount of money. And a lot of people will take, say, you know, for example, many people are getting about five or 700 euros in these lump sums and that they'll take those and they'll put it aside against energy bills. But others won't. I mean, if people have an outstanding demand for a consumer durable or they just add it to their bank account and let it eat away, some people will manage it better than others. And one of the things we know from behavioral economics Economics is that there's quite a lot of individual differences in how people respond to kind of sudden income changes or lump sums like this, with some people managing them substantially better than others. So how do people in general tend to view their money? Do they view it in terms of pots for different purposes or does it all slosh around in one pot or does that depend on the individual? Yeah. So, I mean, in theory, from an accounting point of view, money is just kind of one pool. You can take it from anywhere and you can use it anywhere. That, that That's its genius. That's how it works. But actually, that's not what people do with it. People engage in what's called mental accounting, to use the jargon from behavioral economics. And what it basically means is even if we don't have separate physical pots or separate bank accounts, we have separate mental pots. 
And what we do is, for example, if we get a lump sum of 500 euros that's supposed to help us through the winter, we might put that aside mentally and say, right, I'm not going to touch that because I know that I might get an energy bill that is substantially higher than I'm expecting. There's a lot of uncertainty about that. So I'm going to put it away. Uh, so it's, it's there if I need it. And that's what it's for. Now, interestingly, technology is changing the way mental accounting works. So as I said, a lot of that's always been done mentally. Occasionally, people have actually used, you know, literally separate kind of cash pots in the kitchen or separate savings accounts. But one of the things that's happened recently, of course, is digital banking and the ability to really track how you're spending more accurately through apps. And in, the, in those apps, you can actually set money aside in different places. So you can sort of engage in the mental accounting. And I mean, I'd actually say that the early evidence on this suggests those apps are really quite beneficial. So if people are thinking about, you know, how am I going to get through this winter? How am I going to make good use of these lump sums I've been given? Uh, those kind of digital banking apps are actually very useful ways of tracking your spending because generally we're not actually great at ch tracking our spending and changing it in re response to income changes. We tend actually to control our spending mostly through habit, which means change is usually quite difficult. Yeah, and we, we've been talking a lot about, you know, how people will use these lump sums, but actually in real terms, people's income is going to come down over the, the coming months if it hasn't already. And just going back to what you said a moment ago, how do we cope with that, with, with incomes adjusting? Well, the evidence would suggest that different people are going to cope with it in different ways. So... The difficulty is that people who are more impulsive or people who are less good at habitually budgeting, the danger for them is that they get these lump sums and they use them too quickly and they don't hold them back. And that's one of the reasons I'm sort of suggesting that if you are one of those people, maybe engaging in one of these digital banking apps um, and trying to track your spending a little more carefully is probably a good idea this winter. I mean, one of the things that makes it very tricky is the degree of uncertainty. So everybody knows their energy bills are going up, but trying to work out by exactly how much and what they're going to be faced with um, is much more difficult to do. And most people won't do that. They'll have a kind of estimate of it in their head and it might not be a particularly good one. So mm -hmm. it's like you need to hold something back in terms of insurance and so therefore saving a bit of money now and making sure you've got a little bit more available later in the winter is probably a good strategy. A lot of people will do it, but not everybody. And people who fritter the money away too quickly may find themselves in greater difficulty towards the end of the winter. Insightful words from Professor Pete Lunn, head of the Behavioural Research Unit at the ESRI on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Press Photographer of the Year James Crombie had his first ever exhibition last night in Tullamore Library, County Offaly, and he spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon about it. So, so how did last night go? Oh, it was amazing. Uh, we had about 250 people in for the for the exhibition uh, unveiling. Uh, it was a very emotional evening for everyone and uh, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, uh, you call it uh, 321 exhibition. Just explain that for us. Yes, so uh, I had to write this down because I keep mi mixing it up, but the medical term for Down syndrome is trisomy 21. Uh -huh. So so it's people with Down syndrome of the third copy of the 21st chromosome. So uh, that's that's where it comes from, 321. And that's why World Down Syndrome Day is the 3rd of, of March, 321. So that's the, the link in that. Right, and, and this month is World Awareness Month. Yeah, World Down Syndrome Awareness Month. So yeah. yeah, it was it was just the perfect month to be able to to get this exhibition out there. Yeah, uh, so it's it's forty six black and white portraits um, of people uh, with Down syndrome, um, mm -hmm. and the range in age is from uh, fourteen months to fifty five, I think. Okay, uh, and in there is your six year old Chloe. 
Yes. Is she six or seven? She's six. six. Uh, she'll be, I think she'll be seven soon, but uh, she's right. six at the minute. The, the kids keep changing their ages. <laughs> For the crack, is it? <laughs> I know, it's confusing. Because <laughs> you have four girls. I have four girls, yeah, yeah, uh, four. And, and Chloe is second from the bottom. Yeah, yeah, all in primary school at the moment. So right. we have a busy, a busy house every morning. My, my wife has run off the feet. I'm not much use, but uh, yeah, Chloe's in senior infants. And how, how did she get on last night? Uh, she had a great time. Yeah, she was running around. She was dressed as... Um, uh, she had her denim jacket on and was dressed as Anna underneath from um, from Frozen. So yes. she was going around freezing people. So she was having great fun. <laughs> right, okay. And how did, particularly the children, how did they react to seeing themselves? Because the the pictures are quite big. They're, what, they're about two foot by two foot, are they? Or? Yeah, they're, they're 40, um, I think it's uh, 20 inches by 20 inches. So right, they're, okay. they're, they're relatively normal size. Yeah, yeah. There was, I've just seen kids hugging their picture and <laughs> kissing their picture and getting their picture with their picture. And yeah. uh, it was it was very, it was, it was brilliant. It was really heartwarming last night. It was, a, it was some lovely scenes in there and it was just, it was just nice to be able to do it for them. And what do you think something like this achieves? James, look, it's it's awareness and inclusion is what the idea of this. It wasn't fundraising. We weren't looking for money. We were just trying to open people's eyes. They'll they'll be visible to everyone in the public for the next month. And it's just just basically getting it out there. Like you know what I mean. Employment is important. You know, uh, access to school and and needs in schools is important. So just making sure it's it's just as visible as possible. And and and, and that's I suppose a thing when you you talk to parents of. Uh, children with Down syndrome it, it's the future that that yeah. always comes up isn't it? Yeah I remember when Chloe was born man um, it was just trying to like I was already zooming ahead to 30 years time when I mightn't be around or my wife mightn't be around and that was the big worry like you know what I mean How what's going to happen then um, but everyone told me to live in the moment and forget about that but yeah look they, 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 those people in that community want to work and they want to go to school and they want to have friends and it's that's what we're there's massive changes and improvements in the last years but that's what we're really trying to push and make sure that happens you know And did you know that Chloe was going to be born with Down Syndrome? No we found out about 20 minutes after she was born so it was a bit of a it was a roller coaster day I remember just not something that you were really prepared for but um, well, like it was just uh, yeah but my wife was, was so unbelievable and then she went back to sleep because she had a section so she was fairly uh, she was fairly knocked out but um, yeah it was it was an emotional day I remember going home to my parents house and crying actually and I, I don't think I've done that in 30 years but you know look we've our hearts been opened up to all, all that community since then and meeting adults and I, I go for coffee with some of the adults during the week sometimes and it's just really it's really reassuring you know Hmm. Uh, and Chloe is in a small enough school, Balnagar National School. Yeah, I think there's about 190 kids in the school, so it's not too small. But like the school I went to school was the, the school I went to. There was 34 children. Right. But uh, <laughs> to me, that's a massive school, 190. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a really nice school, and they've been really you know, encouraging and they have a sensory room there and there's some great facilities and the SNAs work with them and the teachers work with us and it's it's brilliant. You can't can't fault them at all. And what about other things, um, you know, like speech therapy and all that? How are those services? Yeah, like we we through Offy Down syndrome we've we've managed to hire someone and we fund that privately. You know, it's needed more on the national level. Everyone like speech is so important. That's what's gonna make inclusion and 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 everything's you know and um you know, so much more achievable. So, you know, the country needs as many speech and language therapists as possible and, mm. and, and make sure those services are available regularly to people. Photographer James Crombie talking to Ray Darcy about his 321 exhibition in Tullamore Library, County Offaly, celebrating Down Syndrome Awareness Month.
Writer and documentary maker Monica McGann joined Ryan Tuberty this morning to talk about his new book, Listen to the Land Speak, a journey into the wisdom of what lies beneath us. At what point do you decide, Mancon, I need to write this story? I need to 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 make this into a book. Uh, I always wonder: is 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 it a, a once-off moment um, mm-hmm. that comes to you in the middle of the night, or have you been thinking about it since you were a teenager? Or yeah. Why, why now? Why the land speaking? So you know, I would have spent ten years just traveling the world from about eighty-nine to ninety-seven or something. Um, is that ten years? Eighty-nine, ninety-seven. Yeah. Um, you know, travel, living in Africa and South America and India. And that gave me this perspective, uh, living always with minority cultures. And then I started making Tijikara documentaries mm. about them and seeing the richness of cultures that were living on the edge and the threat of modernity at who was changing them. And so I suppose that made me focus on our language and the legacy, the cultural legacy that I would have had be being brought up in West Kerry for some of the year and meeting the Blasket Islanders and seeing the connection they had not only to the land, but to the other world, the mythic world that is like so much part of, an, of the Irish language. And so that like, led to the book I brought out two years ago, 32 Words for Field, which was about language. But language is a, it's a human construct. It's very profound, but it's a human construct. But, and there's a huge amount of wisdom uh, encoded within the Irish language, as, we sh- as I showed in that first yes. book. But I thought there's a whole other level encoded in the land. Like, according to the Shanachas Moor, you know, what the, the Druids, the knowledge the Druids kept Possibly some of the some of the wisdom that's in these f- myths, see, geographers now seem to think stretch back ten thousand years. So the druids had this ability, like we see with shamans and native people, or cultures all around the world, could in, could encode language in stories and then bring it down through the generations. Mm. So in terms of the druids in Ireland, they had this thing: what is the preserving shrine? How do we keep knowledge alive? Right? It is in memory and all that's preserved in it. That's why the you know the druids nothing was written down. The stories, the information about the old lineage, the old climate change, all was in the stories. But then they asked the question again: what is the preserving shrine? And the answer is. It is land and what's preserved in it. So you see, the memories were in the stories, but the stories are encoded in the land. Each story is told about a particular place. And you find the exact same concept in Native America. You still find the same in Aboriginal Australia and in Africa. So we can look at the myths, but then if we go back and root, connect those myths to the land, and we're so lucky in Ireland because all of our place names, original place names, survive. Mm. And according to the Place Names Commission, most of our place names date from at least the 7th century. BC, so they're, they're 1,300 years. So even that brings us back to a view of the world that's before anything resembling the modern age. So we, so we use the land to to help us understand, or we use stories to help us understand the land. Is that it? And Exactly. As you say, wherever you go in the world and you've been there, we as human beings, as a species, that's what we do. Exactly. And have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. So more locally then, uh, in your book, I was taken by the in terms of, of, of learning, uh, rivers. Mm. And obviously one military mind will say a river is for bringing the, transporting the, the arms and the food into it. And that's why all the big towns and cities in the world are based on, on river sides yeah. and what have you. But the names of the rivers in mm. Ireland, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. And, so as you said, like we have the, you know, modern humans have been so successful by this looking at nature through an exploitative lens. And mm. that's led to our great cities, our great advances. So the Shannon, how can we build industry on it? How can we tap it to produce electricity? But we look back in the myths or just the stories we preserved and it seems like first in Irish, all of the rivers have female names, all of them. 
And a lot of them are actually goddesses. So the Shunan is Shunna, a goddess, or Shanoinya. Shanoinya is this ultimate goddess and monster. So it's either Shunna, which is a young goddess, or Shanoinya, which is old Anya. And she is manifested in the landscape in the form of the Shannon, in the same way as the Boin is the goddess Boin or Boinda. And Boinda means bow, means cow. Fin means fair or white or transparent. In other words, being able to access knowledge, to see through the veil. So, and that Bowen, Bowen, the mother goddess who's represented the landscape by this goddess, she's the exact same goddess that you find in India called Govinda, a former Krishna, yeah, yeah. because yeah. we share the same culture, you know, back like five to six thousand years ago before we moved out um, and, you know, spread farming in both directions. And then like the Ban, Bad the Bandon, that's all Bandia. They're all goddesses. So... You can imagine a people, our ancestors, who saw the land as sacred. They were walking by a river and they realised it was just this sacred entity. And the reason why it was sacred, well, I presume some mystical reasons, but also it nourished the soil. It provided water for the crops. So it was giving all of the benefits of gods to the people to allow them flourish. Yeah. So it made sense that then you gave benefits, you gave... Um, you gave gifts to it, which is why when they when they do excavations under any of these rivers, when they retreat, you find these masses of shields, of swords, of of bones, of carved items given in offering to the river. And just imagine if we even took an element of that back today and started thinking, oh, these rivers aren't just resources to exploit. They're not just resources to pump nitrates into and get the nitrates elsewhere, but actually they're may be magical or at least that they are they have their own integrity so why why the feminine uh, nature of name of, of naming rivers why mm. why always after female or tendencies what have you given that you would imagine the, the country and the society was ruled by patriarchal uh, chiefdoms and so on yeah that's true um and so we, we everything in our history isn't it it's about kings and chiefs and all and then St. Patrick you know Christianity was another patriarchy but before that the Druids they were male Druids so even before Christianity before you know colonisation it was a male society but somehow there's these hints that everything before that was 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 a matriarchal society really? but there's no there's no proof because you know writing was a male dominated thing so mm. there's no like written proof except that what we get a sense I was this story this book I thought listen Land speak, I'll just bring out the old myths, the myths of Finn McCool and Cúchol and cite them, talk about them in particular locations and Bob's your uncle, the job's done. But the minute I looked at all these, under every single one of these stories about a male god, Cúchol or Finn, there's a female goddess. There's Like the whole of Munster is about Anya. There's, and Anya is the genitive of Anne, which means brightness or light. So Anya is basically, it's the warmth of the sun. It's the, the you know, the war- Ireland became, you know, was settled after the sun, the, the climate warmed, whatever, you know, um, nine, ten thousand years ago, the warmth moved up and people moved up with it. And so the god of this sun coming from the south, coming from the south every year after the darkness of winter was their primary you know, their cry worships and and that was represented by Anya. Also Anya and Grania and Grania means grain. Uh, so it's to do with these people, the Neolithic people who brought farming, you know, um, kind of seven, eight thousand years ago, and then us, the Bronze Age people. Like in my genes, I primarily have Bronze Age DNA in me. So that's the people who arrived four and a half thousand years ago. And we brought all of these stories with us about these female goddesses at the time. And so like you have everywhere you go, there's either a kind of story in most locations about about Eru or Etna or Anya or Grania or Boinda or Fola. Um, but then 
they were on top of those were put these male stories, and of course they were because the druids were interested in, the, in, in focusing on the male, mm. the monks were interested in focusing on the male, and so we hid the whole idea of the Bridget or the Kailach, the the old all, all, ultimate mother goddess who controlled everything. Um, the other way you see that it seems that everything was female, you know the way the the Stone Age, the the ceremonial or ritual sites like Newgrange or Nowth or Douth or Loch Crewe. So they're all this big pregnant belly rising up out of the belly and even Brune the Boina, Brune the Boina. Brew means, Brew means a fairy fort or it means a youth hostel, but Brew is also Bryn, it's also the womb. So these are womb sites, okay? And you remember you have a tunnel going into the centre and in the centre of the belly, the rise belly, you have this little sacred womb site. And at the solstice or the equinox, depending on the, the ritual ceremony, we call them tombs often, but very few people were, there weren't very many dead bodies. There was, you know, the ashes of maybe one or two leaders, but they were, they were more ritual sites than tombs. Anyway, the sun on the solstice of Reckonworks enters the passageway, and the sun is always a male. In most cultures, the sun, the hot sun is a male, enters the, almost the, the vaginal passage, the passage entranceway of the woman, into, impregnates the womb, where all these, you know, um, symbols, sacred symbols are, and that gives birth to a new thing of life. And, you know, when you have farming people who are depending absolutely on the sun coming in March, warming the body of the female earth to allow new growth to happen. (laughs) It seems to make sense. It seems to make sense indeed, I think. The authentic Moncron McGann there talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning about his new book, Listen to the Land Speak. At the age of 37, Irish boxer Eric Donovan added European title winner to his impressive list of achievements at the end of last month. Eric spoke this morning to Claire Byrne. You're looking well after that battle. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> wasn't looking too well a few days ago, yeah, but it was, it was good a, healing powers. Yeah, it was a tough one, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, it really was. Like 12 rounds of boxing is 36 minutes, you know. And then if you add in the breaks, the one minute break between the rounds, you know, you're looking at more than three quarters of an hour in the ring, fighting at the very highest level. And I've never boxed past eight rounds before. Haven't you? Know? you? No. So, I mean... um, it all boils down to your preparation. You know, I trained so hard for this and I needed everything to go right for me as well because at 37, it's not easy. The odds are stacked against you. You know, biologically, you know, you're not supposed to be at that level at that age. Well, mm-hmm. that's what the stats would say, but... How I old just, was he, your opponent? He was 27. Yeah, so he, was he had years, 10 years yeah, on you. 10 years my junior. But the crazy thing about it all is I was retired at 28 to to the 28 to 31 I went back into third level education and we can talk about that in a second but for those three years I stopped boxing and I I'd done a little bit of training but I stopped competing and then I had kind of like this unfinished business this regret I was living in regret and sorrow and self-pity about all my near misses of the past and setbacks and shortcomings and it was a terrible place to be mm-hmm. you know nobody was a lot of that regret centered around what happened in the run up to 2012 yeah that i suppose and of course just the the kind of life that goes with addiction and mental health problems and depression and you know you you want to be a good person you want to be a success you want to do well you want to make people happy but you're dealing with something that's more powerful than any of your wishes or your desires, you mm-hmm. know, and that kind of controls you. 
and that kind of leads you around a bend. Um, do, do you want to talk about what happened coming up to 2012? Just yeah, to explain right. to people, because you were you were pretty much dead cert to be part of that Olympics team, right? Yeah, but I suppose that was kind of the straw, well, the straw that broke the camel's back. But if you go right back even maybe to earlier, let's talk about, you know, growing up. Like, I think I was 13 when I took my first drug, you know, 13 years of age, you know. What was that? And it was just hash, marijuana, like, you know, when I say that, just hash, it was kind of like, you know, that that's normal. But when I say that, it's normal. The community that I came from, it really was. Everybody was smoking it, you know, and it was so accessible and so ready. And even now, when we look at hash, we might say, ah, we might have a different opinion on hash. But back then, it was like a big thing, you know, mm. but it was very quickly... It very quickly advanced to more class A ecstasy than cocaine within the space of two years, you know. Um, and then, of course, these drugs and the drink and the cigarettes and all of those, they were just, they were, they were giving me a feeling of belonging, of happiness, but it wasn't a real happiness. I just, I mean, I'm listening to you say all of these things yeah. that you were involved in and I'm thinking about you performing as an athlete at the level yeah. that you were performing at the yeah. whole way through that. I don't know how you did that. Yeah, because I had this natural ability, a real special talent for boxing. Like I remember I walked into a club at seven years old and I really did kind of, you, you could see people, when I got into the ring, you could see a bit of movement around the club, you know, or around whatever boxing gym I was in. People, people paying attention people paid to you. People attention, yeah. look at this guy, you know, and I knew that and that kind of fed into my ego as well. But when you start recreational drugs and drinking at the weekend and kind of community that I came from, it deemed a disadvantaged area, council estate, you know, best people in the world, lovely people. But, you know, when drugs and drink gets in there, it just filters in and becomes strife, you know, um, and it became a weekend thing. Mm. And, you know, he'll hear grandparents saying the youth is wasted on the, uh, on the young. Um, so I had this innate ability to shake off the damage of the weekend before so and then Monday to Friday I'd be doing great and then Friday to Sunday I'd be partying again But clearly you could control all of that until you got to that yeah. crunch point when it yeah. all just went wrong And that was it you know I, I, I just feel like it was the inevitable crash because in life there is no fairy tale ending with with drink and drugs and that kind of behaviour I genuinely believe that it doesn't matter what level you're in at you're in um in, in that in that regard, but you're you're always you know there's never going to be a happy ending with it. Um, and I remember 2010 was my best year as an amateur. I won the nationals. I went to the I beat the reigning world champion, and then I went to the European senior championships and won a bronze medal. So now I'm top ten in the world. I'm number three in Europe, and this is the lead up to London Olympics. And I'm like, wow, I'm. I'm going to be seeded now. I'm going to have an easy passageway through to London. Everything is just aligning for me. This is brilliant. And I just, it was a matter of a waiting game, you know, to, to, to get my qualification. And obviously I had a couple of tests to pass, but like, you know, they were you kind sort of, of knew you, I kind of knew I passed them, you know, because now I was in a, a much healthier position. So we rolled forward from 2010, 2011. And just before I went into the final training camp for the qualifiers, um, I decided to go out for a night out with a few friends. Look, it's a very normal, natural thing to do. As I say, for normal people or, you know, people who are able to drink sensibly. But for me, every time I, every time I picked up a drink, I ended up in some sort of trouble. Whether it was embarrassment or shame or guilt or remorse, always something. And, but yeah, it was, 
it was always somebody else's fault as well. It was that pub or it was that club or it was that group of friends or it was he, sh- he said, she said. It was never me, you know. Mm-hmm. But this time it's going to be different because that's what my head tells me. Oh, sure, you go and we'll have a few drinks and everything will be fine. And anyway, sure enough, the few drinks, you know, my be- my my best intentions go out the window. I lose all my ability to be sensible. I end up back in a house party late that night and I'm wasted. I shouldn't even be there. I should be home in bed. And I get into a bit of a scuffle with a man. It's not even, it's just silliness. It lasts about 10 seconds and I break my hand, my left hand. Disaster. And break my chances of the Olympic Games. You see, a lot of people, that might happen to them and they'd say, it was a bad night. I was unlucky. It shouldn't Mm. have happened. You just stopped giving yourself those excuses, did you? Yeah, there's a famous quote from uh, Marty Rubin, a Canadian author. It said, the truth is what's left when we run out of excuses, you know. And I loved that. And at that period of my life, I just became very depressed and down. And because most of my life, I believed I was only a boxer, you know, mm-hmm. like that became my whole identity because education wasn't something at the forefront of my life or my family's life. And didn't I, I just turned up in school, really, you know, I never really learned. And and boxing was I was incredibly good at boxing. But now I felt like, you know, here I was the only thing that I was good at failing miserably. And I just didn't feel like I had a purpose in life anymore. And it was a dangerous place to be, you know, I contemplated suicide and t- I'm not just talking about that in a fleeting way. I genuinely thought maybe I was going to take my own life. Um, but in that place of, you know, raw vulnerability, something extraordinary happened, you know. I opened my mind, my heart and my soul to the possibility of change and allowing people in to my life. Because for a long time, for years and years, I lived a life of... Uh, this tough exterior champion boxer you know what I mean no, show no weakness show no mercy you know it was always that kind of tough rugged and ready type person but you know I needed to soften and I needed to open up because inside I was really hurt and I was wounded and I was I had a lot of emotional and mental turmoil that I didn't know how to address well, That moment with the broken hand and all those feelings mm. were going on that must have been a very dangerous moment when I mean, you me- mentioned your suicidal thoughts mm. that was either going to go one way or the other there It was because again I feel like I was kicking my mum in the teeth my family in the teeth my coach who looked after me so much he, like my coach he went above and beyond the call of duty when it comes to coaching to look to keep me associated with the club to keep me connected to the club because I wanted to I leave the club so many times because I wanted to hang around with the boys and girls and run amok Have and self-destruct and do yeah. all this stuff yeah and, and he, he kept coming back and bringing you back he me like he, coaches wouldn't do that today they'd wash their hands with you he used to call to the front door I'd run out the back door <laughs> he'd be chasing me around honestly he even pulled me out of house parties and everything but you know I thank him today because you know the finally the penny dropped for mm-hmm. me you know and and anyways I I put out the hand instead of taking the more drastic action, uh, the so, more grievous action, and I asked for help. And what did you do? How did you get? The I help? went into rehabilitation, okay. and um, I know it's very. It sounds, it's a very bleak picture I'm painting. Within the space of a few weeks, a couple of months, I went from being a strong candidate for the London Olympic Games to want to take my own life, to now sitting in a, an addiction rehabilitation centre, surrounded by a bunch of strangers, trying to understand my life and how I ended up here and what am I going to do. And, and that's, there's a sadness to that, you know, mm-hmm. but there's great hope there. The remarkable Eric Donovan, European welterweight champion, talking to you, Claire Byrne, this morning.
Somehow, a scratch on a car that cost €400 to repair ended up costing €40,000 on one man's insurance. Cormac explained what happened on this afternoon's Liveline. My son Joe had a minor accident. Okay. Uh, The car in front of him cut in in him and he hit the back of it, which you can't do. Okay. He was, uh, a guard the car was passing. Okay. And they stopped and they came over and the two men in question, my son and another man, decided that my son would fix his car. Okay. And the guard said, are you happy at that? And the two men shook hands, gentlemen's agreement. Okay. And they shook hands and the guard said, you're all okay. And they drove on, which they were entitled to do because oh, they, they intervened and uh, they were sent away and everything was fine. And what was the damage to the injured party's car, so to speak? The, very little, Joe. It cost €425.58. To get fixed? To get fixed. Okay. But my son contacted the injured party a few times to know how much it was. Yeah. And... They spoke for a few times, and next thing is then he couldn't make no more contact with him, but he got a text saying that he was going to his solicitor. Okay. So Which is after that, to then, do. yes, yes, and it went on then, and everything was, he didn't know what was happening until he got this letter. And I can read out the the. the, the to yeah. list of fees and all, if you yeah, want. Yeah, please to. do, please do, because yeah, I think yeah, people... Yeah. Anyway, let people make their own mind up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we have well, a situation where damage to the other vehicle, which was admitted by your son, was just yeah. over 400 quid. They shook hands on the street. Your son offered to get, a, to get it fixed. I don't know whether it was a scratch or... It's not much for 400 quid. And that, is, that is the final... By the way, that is the final agreed damage done to the car, according to the insurance company and the injured party yeah. and everyone else involved. 425 quid and 58 cent. OK. Now, how did 425 quid and 58 cent... How did your son, through his policy, through his insurance... already paid. Um, how did your son's insurance company pay out... €39,924.53. A hundredfold it's gone up. What happened in the meantime? Give me, break it down for me. I will indeed, Joe, and thank you. First of all, he got the letter about three weeks ago. And since he got that letter, I can hardly sleep at night with the, 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 just the way, anyway, personal injuries, 15,000. Okay. Own solicitor, which is the insurance solicitor. Now, I'm sorry to say, just to get this right, there was no court case. My son got no solicitor. Okay. But this is their own solicitor. Got seven thousand three hundred and seventy-nine euro and sixty-five cents. Now, third-party solicitor, which is his solicitor. Yeah. I'd say can now, Joe, because I, I need to get this right. Take your time, yeah. He got the third party solicitor got fifteen thousand nine hundred and twenty euro and five cents. Five cents, okay. Yeah. Okay. Investigation fees five hundred and eighty-four euro and twenty-five cents. 
And down so, then, so that's, a, that's, that's not much of an investigation, fairness. That's a, a couple of hours at most, or a bit of paperwork. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. And other fees then, Jodo, €615. Euro. So, first of all, let's, let's look at the figures. The legal fees, they say own solicitor, even though your son did not employ a solicitor, no. didn't have any dealings with a solicitor. No, but they mean no. the insurance company solicitor. Exactly. Uh, um, that came to seven, uh, nearly seven and a half thousand. Exactly. The, the injured party, who who we now know was given 15 grand for a personal injury. Yes. But the, the injured party solicitor got 16,000. So, exactly. so solicitor's fees for a, a car that was damaged to the tune of 425 euro, solicitor's fees are basically 24, 20, yeah, 24,000 euro. 24,000 exactly. euro for, for a case that did not even go to court. That did not go to court. Okay. Now, um, vehicle damage 400, but what, was, what was the damage to the car, do you know? George was very little. Because that's why he said, look, it's not going to cost much to get it fixed, like. And the guardy, when they arrived on the scene, the guardy didn't say, oh, that, there's a lot of damage there, he's made. No, no, Give me no. the details. Actually, if that was, George, they wouldn't go away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they, yeah. It was very minor. And now, when, when, the two, when the two lads, your son and the injured party, shook hands, were they standing on the road? Oh, they were standing on the road, yes. No, you mean, I mean, the, the injured party wasn't trapped in the car or unable no, to stand no, up. No, no, no. Tobin got out and they spoke. There was be when the guards were there and the guards said, I can see you, you're soft. So they went away. No blame to the guards. They went away because she looked, was a minor, very minor. We no. thought until we got this deal. That's caller Cormac telling Joe Duffy the story of how a €400 euro scratch to a car ended up with an insurance bill for €40,000 on this afternoon's Live Line. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, you may have noticed that Jared, sitting two cubicles across from you, has been checking his phone every two minutes, waiting for the call to rise up against the lizard people who are determined to make life difficult for that most persecuted of species, white males. Or something like that. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Aoife Gallagher, author of Web of Lies, spoke to Claire about the dangers of conspiracy theories. And the conversation started with the basics. What is a conspiracy theory? People will often kind of conflate conspiracies and conspiracy theories. And I suppose the very kind of basic difference between them is that a conspiracy is speculative, right? So a lot of the time, conspir- or sorry, conspiracy theories are speculative. So conspiracies, you know, conspiracies that have been proven to be true are normally based on an evidence basis or there's an investigation done and they're proven to be true. Conspiracy theories, on the other hand, as I say, are speculative and there tends to be a lack of actual evidence that they're true. So they're kind of based on people guessing, I suppose, and, and belief more than actual truth. OK, and you ask that question, you know, or, or you pose that question about the lure. What is the lure? What is attractive? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I kind of opened the book with a chapter essentially kind of looking at the psychology of conspiracy belief, which I think is something that 
is, is very important to understand because essentially we're all susceptible to conspiracy theories. I think sometimes there's this idea that it's only people who are, you know, less educated or, you know, people are crazy for believing in conspiracy theories. But actually our brains are kind of built for it in a lot of ways. And there's kind of cognitive functions in our brains that can be very easily tricked into um, having people kind of be drawn into this. Um, and I talked to a couple of psychologists as well, which was really interesting. And they kind of told me that people tend to kind of embrace conspiracy theories when certain psychological needs in their life are not being met, right? And there's kind of three kind of core ones. And the first one is the need to feel safe and secure in the world that you live in. Uh, the second is the need for knowledge, the need to know what's going on in the world and kind of feel like like you know what's going on. Mm-hmm, fully informed. Uh, yes, exactly. And then the third one is the need to feel um, good as part of your social circle. So when these needs are not being met, people tend to kind of be drawn to conspiracy theories. And what they tend to do is give people fairly simple answers to the kind of chaos of the world, right? So instead of trying to kind of pick apart the real complexities and the nuance of why things are kind of so chaotic and wild, they'll give these kind of overarching simplistic answers. Everything is, you know, you know, the world is crazy because there is a small group of people who are controlling everything behind the scenes and there's a sinister plot in place. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're asking those questions, you go online, for example, and you mm-hmm. have your aha moment. Now I understand it mm-hmm. because I have my answer. I have the missing piece exactly. of the jigsaw. And that, that kind of secret knowledge is really powerful. It kind of gives makes people think that they that they have knowledge that other people don't. And that can be, it can be pretty empowering for people mm-hmm. to think that they... Yeah, that they're kind of, they have access to secrets, I suppose. And how much information is there around whether men or women are more susceptible? Um, I don't know if there's any kind of good data around that or if there is, it's not something that I'm aware of. But um, like, as I said, there there tends to be the, the idea that everyone that believes in them are, are crazy or stupid. And I kind of really wanted to dispel that myth mm. as well. But a lot of the characters that you introduce us to in the book are male, aren't they? Yeah, but I think, I mean, maybe there is, as I say, I don't kind of want to speak outside of actually having data to support it. Mm. And I suppose kind of um, certain, maybe certain conspiracy theories are more susceptible, male, males are more susceptible to it. There's, um, I suppose, you know, a big element that feeds into the kind of alt-right, which is essentially the kind of online version of the far right, is very much rooted in anti-feminism mm-hmm. and misogyny. And that would, you know, be, you know, I think men would be more and in when, tune with when that. When it comes to suspicions around feminism, mm. for the people who sus- subscribe to that, what is the nature of the threat that feminism seems to pose for them? Essentially, they kind of believe that feminism is um, the reason why or, or that feminism is the cause of all the world's problems i suppose in a lot of ways and that feminism pushed women into work and it you know destroyed the family structure and a lot of the kind of inherent you know, thinking within far right movements is the idea that the traditional family structure is the backbone of the nation. So feminism, obviously, say, encourages women to work. Um, it pushes for things like abortion rights and kind of disintegrates that kind of idea of the mm-hmm. family structure. Um, so that's kind of one of the, the the real kind of inherent kind of beliefs there. And you you talk as well about there being a grain of, tr- of truth behind mm. a lot of the conspiracy theories that we see around the place at the moment. And I want to just talk to you about QAnon and mm. maybe you might tell us what 
that is and how it started. Yeah, QAnon is a very kind of complicated and, and lurid conspiracy theory and it started in October of 2017 um, and it really started with a person or people and I kind of explore that that element of it in the book as well um, that were posting anonymously online on um, a couple of different websites, one called 4chan, one called 8chan. Again, I kind of go into to both those websites as well in the book um, and they were posting claiming that they were a high-level government insider in the US Department of Energy and that Mm -hmm. they had secrets that they wanted to share with the world. Um, And over the space of about four years, they left um, 5,000 drops, they're called drops, I'm using kind of air quotes there, um, on um, 8chan and 4chan. And, you know, they kind of range from, you know, a couple of words to, you know, really long, meandering, kind of complicated phrases and things like that. And people essentially dedicated a lot of time to um, decoding these drops and trying to figure out what was behind them. It wasn't like he, like this person was kind of saying, this is what's happening. It was more like you had to decode this to, to mm-hmm. kind of figure out what was going on. So it became a, a game. It became yes, something that you were waiting for the next installment yeah. of. Very much so. And the kind of power of QAnon, I describe it in the book as a conspiracy theory soup, because essentially you can kind of drop any conspiracy theory into QAnon that will become part of the mix. But it does have a kind of through line, I suppose. And the through line is the idea that uh, during Trump's presidency, that he was fighting a a kind of a secret war against the deep state. And the deep state is within QAnon, it is kind of positioned as um, a group of elite liberals and Democrats that are all involved in some kind of child trafficking and paedophilia. Um, And that is the kind of through line of it. Um, So, you know, QAnon, even after Trump's presidency, you know, sorry, actually during the pandemic, actually QAnon kind of exploded and it kind of, it kind of, it really infiltrated a lot of different conspiracy theory movements. So it kind of became ingrained in, in COVID-19 conspiracy theories. People might remember actually the um, the anti-lockdown protest here in Dublin at mm-hmm. the end of February 2021. People probably remember it because there was a firework shot at Gardaí and the, and the Gardaí bat and charged the crowd. Um, but there was a report in the Sunday Times, you know, talking to women who were at that, um, that march. And they spoke about, <laughs> this is probably a little bit close to home, but they spoke about um, people in RTE t- torturing children in order to extract adrenochrome, which is a kind of substance within QAnon mm-hmm. lure again, that they believe is an anti-aging substance. So, um, so yeah, so all yeah. of those are all of those theories are linked back to QAnon. To QAnon. Yes, exactly. You can't talk about any of this and not talk about social media. Mm. Like this stuff thrives because of social media, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all, or mostly all, Facebook's fault. As you'll discover if you listen to the complete piece on the RTE radio player. The book is called Web of Lies, The Lore and Danger of Conspiracy Theories and its author Aoife Gallagher was talking to Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily, uh uh-huh, at the same time tomorrow, probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.